from Movendi International, I'm Mike Dünnbier. Welcome to the Alcohol Issues podcast in our 16th episode. This week we focus on commercial determinants of health and the World Health Organization, zooming in on conflicts of interest at the new WHO Foundation and shedding light on the broader context of corporate objectives of health-harmful industries such as big alcohol and big junk food. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, April 28th, 2021. For the 16th episode of the Alcohol Issues podcast, we welcome today Professor Jeffrey Collin and Dr. Nathan Mani. Jeff Collin is Professor of Global Health Policy at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, UK. Jeff is a political scientist by background and he previously worked at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Moving to Edinburgh in 2005, he established a suit of Master of Science programs in health policy, joining the School of Social and Political Science in 2010 when the Global Public Health Unit was created within social policy. Nathan Mani was most recently a 2019-2020 Harkness Fellow at the Boston University of Public Health and an Assistant Professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He is focused on the structural and commercial determinants of health and Nathan also serves as an advisor to the Boston University Rockefeller 3D Commission on Data, Determinants and Decision-Making. They are two of the authors of a very timely, important and high-profile scientific commentary published in February in BMJ Global Health. Their commentary is called The New WHO Foundation – Global Health Deserves Better and has received much attention, especially among civil society and community groups dealing with the effects of health-harmful industries interfering in public health policy-making, particularly in the areas of non-communicable diseases and their risk factors. So today we will discuss the commentary and broader issues around it. In our conversation, we discuss the topic of global health governance, the importance of WHO's independence and the challenges posed by commercial determinants of health. We analyze key conflicts of interest issues that threaten the credibility and norm-setting function of the World Health Organization. This topic is brought into sharp focus by the newly created WHO Foundation and how they decide to treat the alcohol industry and other health-harmful corporate giants such as Nestle. With Jeff and Nathan I discuss to what extent the recent debacle of the European Super League in football can serve as an analogy to help understand key concerns around the WHO Foundation. Nathan and Jeff share profound insights into how health-harmful corporations work and leverage donor relations to achieve their key corporate objectives. And in our conversation we also look at the bigger picture. In the era of sustainable development where NCDs and their risk factors such as alcohol are among the biggest obstacles to not only good health but sustainable development overall, conflicts of interest inherent in many partnerships and donor relations 
with commercial determinants of health pose a serious threat to achieving NCDs and SDGs targets. Nathan and Jeff explain how and why. I really enjoyed this focused conversation about global health governance and commercial determinants of health. We discussed a number of really big questions and Nathan and Jeff shared really insightful reflections and analysis that will inform my work going forward. Before we get into the conversation, I want to correct one piece of information. The Anheuser-Busch InBev investment that I mentioned during my conversation with Jeff and Nathan um, about changing social norms around alcohol is $1 billion over 10 years in six cities. It's part of their so-called Smart Drinking Goals initiative. I had that number wrong and um, we are also adding a bit more information um, about Anheuser-Busch InBev in the show notes. And now on to the conversation. Hello, uh, Jeff and Nathan. Um, welcome to the Alcohol Issues podcast and uh, really big thanks to the both of you uh, for taking time to talk with me today. I think we have a big topic, so let me just introduce it a little bit. I read um, the, is it called scientific commentary that you published, I think already in February in the British Medical Journal, uh, Global Health, it's called the new WHO Foundation, Global Health Deserves Better. And uh, now there are issues around uh, the WHO Foundation, for example, how they have uh, listed the alcohol industry, they have moved it from being red-listed to orange-listed, and there are other issues around uh, health-harmful industries uh, that we would, that I would really like to discuss with you. So, so thanks for coming on today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Cheers, Mike. And to start us off, um, I, I thought maybe the best is really to start at the beginning and to ask why is the independence of the World Health Organization as a principle. Why is that uh, so important? Maybe we go with you first, Jeff, and, and then over to Nathan. Sure, that's um, such a really big foundational question. And I think one of the most important ones confronting global health. Um, WHO has been, you know, in a permanent state of crisis um, for decades uh, and has um, constantly been revising a number of uh, problems that ultimately emerged through uh, it being an organisation that hasn't been funded well um, by states. Um, and it's really important to put this in, uh, in a big picture context because I guess you know, some of the things that we're going to say are going to sound quite critical of WHO, but really the problems of the WHO Foundation um, really kind of oddly actually stem from the legitimacy of WHO and its importance in global health. So WHO was set up with an incredibly democratic um, mandate. Uh, and as international organisations go, its record in terms of being responsive to the needs of developing countries has been uh, exemplary. 
Um, it's genuine, you know, comparatively genuinely a, a, a one um, one country, one voice uh, organisation where it has been possible for low and middle income countries to shape the agenda in ways that have been very difficult in other in other contexts. Uh, and you know, it's got a track record of achievement and of normative credentials um, of legitimacy that are, are really kind of important. But the problem is, um, essentially, its its relationship with uh, with donor states for the past few decades has got increasingly difficult as WHO has taken on more more difficult subjects. So you know, tracing back to the the infant formula scandals um, uh, and the development of the infant formula code in the 1980s, the development of essential medicines, all of the things that make WHO so important to global health have essentially made its relationship with key donors difficult uh, and have led to a kind of long-lasting, very long-running financial crisis, um, which has meant WHO has constantly been under pressure to seek new sources of money. Um, uh, and uh, and what we're going to be discussing today, the creation of the WHO Foundation, is a, a, a kind of response to that broader crisis that the um, that the organisation um, is is facing. And it's really important that we, you know, in focusing on the specifics, we don't re- we don't forget that really important general context. WHO is crucial to the very idea of a democratic legitimate global health governance um uh, and all of all of our concerns um stem from the need to protect its really unique status in global health and you said something really interesting here about as um the work that who um is doing is also getting more difficult like going into areas where opposition i imagine you mean is getting uh, more difficult. I think um, then we are already talking about the expertise that you have, Nathan, dealing with commercial determinants of health uh, in the area of non-communicable diseases. So from your perspective, uh, why is the independence of WHO in, in this context so important? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I guess just building off what Jeff um, has said, the independence is important because globally, a lot of the health harms that are of concern to the WHO are driven by uh, profit-seeking industries. And a lot of the future health harms that are likely to disproportionately accrue in low and middle-income countries are likely to be through the aggressive expansion uh, of those of markets for harmful commodities um, in those contexts. And that links back to what Jeff was talking about, this idea that the WHO has, to an extraordinary degree, kind of managed to keep key global health priorities in, in some kind of view. And, and that's where this real, this challenge emerges, you know, that we need a global health a WHO that can bear witness to the foundational threats to health, be they natural or man-made. And so it's kind of a, uh, it's a very difficult situation when you might be trading off the independence to, uh, to hold one to account uh, because of the other. Yeah, I think this point about WHO being in the position to actually focus on the biggest priorities in global health is so important. And 
Now, Jeff, you have already alluded to this a little bit when you talk about donor countries. How is the World Health Organization funded and where is where does the pressure then come from to also create the WHO Foundation? Yeah, there's a real risk of this turning into one of my global health policy lectures for my students, <laughs> but, it's a, but, but I think it, it's a really important question to recognize these kind of fundamental basis. You know, the, the, the constitution of WHO gives the World Health Assembly control over the budget and how its money is spent. Uh, and has a really uh, sets up a really democratic system um, of, uh, of of member state contributions. Um, the problem is when high income countries felt they were losing control of the agenda of of WHO, uh, they've then increasingly sought it to freeze those assessed contributions. Uh, and then the, the vast bulk of the WHO's budget is now kind of excluded from that oversight by being tied in through extra budgetary funds, you know, so donations in order to pursue goal X. Now, the goal X that tends to be pursued by um, uh, by donors tends to shy away from precisely the really big challenges that Mason um, was alluding to. So the, the really kind of dull, tedious stuff about the WHO's budget is fundamental to these kind of, of, of questions. And it, it really does tie into issues about, um, about the power of, of corporations, because lots of the starting point for, for these kind of concerns and tensions were as WHO began to move away from a, an exclusive concern on infectious diseases towards tackling more complex issues like um, uh, the... Uh, um, the cordon marketing of, of breast milk substitutes, like the development of an essential uh, medicines list, where where suddenly there were um, there were increasingly kind of um, complex and contentious economic interests to to balance, and so these these kind of questions that um, that Nathan's alluding to are really kind of central to both the the drivers of the WHO Foundation uh, and. And the problems with the, the way in which it's it's pursued, because there's, there's there's something kind of horribly circular about the you know the the need for a WHO foundation essentially comes about as a result of uh, of legitimate decision making processes being undermined, but the response that's being developed, and we can fully understand the reason why it's being developed, risks further undermining. The legitimacy and status and reputation of WHO moving forward. Yeah, and I think we will get more deeply into uh, this uh, vicious cycle that you're outlining now. Thanks for this. So I read uh, the uh, commentary, and I just wanted to ask Mason. So um, you mentioned also in the commentary the CDC in the United States, the NIH uh, in the United States, they also have these foundations. So there are some funding pressures, um, as uh, Jeff has explained. Why is this WHO foundation a problem? Why is this not a good thing that WHO seeks, as they are saying, innovative uh, funding mechanisms? What's the issue here? Yeah, so uh, that's a great and um very big question. I would say there, there's a, a specific concern and a broader concern as how I would frame it. I think the specific concern is to do with experience of past foundation models, um, which is that, is that this notion of a, a kind of a, an organization, a separate foundation with a firewall 
that can accept donations from, you know, from corporate donors and then pass money on to, to us, another institution like the WHO is, um, you know, there's poor evidence that, that such a firewall can be meaningfully enacted. And on the, on the flip side, there's quite a bit of evidence that purely the donation of funds has a very powerful influence on the agenda of the organization receiving donations um, on the way in which it chooses to approach further action. Um, like a really obvious example uh, would be, for example, uh, with the CDC and the CDC Foundation. So uh, Coca-Cola funded the CDC Foundation and the projects that Coca-Cola chose to fund were physical activity projects. And this fit into a wider corporate strategy, which later emerged in the literature around shifting the emphasis from sugary drinks as a cause of obesity to a lack of physical activity as a cause of obesity. And so even just through the acceptance of that funding, indirectly the CDC was legitimizing this shift from mm. the real independent contribution of sugary drinks and marketing of sugary drinks as uh, contributing to obesity, shifting it to it being more about the consumer, more about um, physical activity. We also found uh, through freedom of information requests that this, this exchange also then allowed ties to be built between the foundation staff and these donors. And then as these staff moved between the foundation to the CDC and so on, it enabled these deeper links and ultimately allowed Coca-Cola to directly lobby the WHO through the CDC to not consider sugar taxes as a, as a policy measure. So you both have this kind of indirect legitimizing of broader corporate strategy to the detriment of health. And you then have this kind of operationalizing of, of direct lobbying um, to prevent measures that might be well evidenced, but that might harm global profits. So that's like the specific concern. I think the broader concern is more what Jeff is, is speaking to. And that is where we've gotten to with the WHO is as a consequence of incremental democratic processes in response to this challenge of funding. So there's been through uh, member states' contributions, through contributions of charities such as uh, yours, through submissions from the public, through academic input, the position of the WHO has kind of incrementally progressed over time where funding from certain sources, yes, has increased where input from a, a range of stakeholders has been more clearly defined. In parallel, there have been efforts to manage conflicts of interest. For example, a tool to manage conflicts of interest in nutrition um, that, uh, that Jeff can maybe speak to a little bit later um, that they wrote a paper on. You know, so there's been an acknowledgement of the need to get more funding. There's been an acknowledgement of the risk of conflicts of interest at WHO. And that has led incrementally imperfectly to things like FENSA and to debates around FENSA. And what to me conceptually is really problematic is that the WHO Foundation is not innovative in the sense that it builds on that incremental progress or acknowledges those barriers. It completely sidesteps them. It sort of ignores a lot of those. It wasn't set up as far as I'm aware with those kind of consultative processes from member states from NGOs, you know, like they would, for example, when putting together the global alcohol strategy. It's sort of sidestepped all that. In a way, it reminds me of the Super League. I don't know if you follow football, 
But really, the WTO Foundation reminds me of the Super League. You had football, which had incrementally emerged over many years to an imperfect status quo with problems. You know what I mean? And then a, a group of kind of individuals decided, we're just going to set up something totally different. We're not going to address those problems that had caused this progress to be slow and incremental. We're not going to involve the stakeholders that were important in that, like, you know, the fans or the, the media, yeah. or in our case, the NGOs and the member states, we're just going to quietly set up something totally different. And I think, so that's going from the specific concerns about the foundation itself to the more broader concerns about how this represents a big departure from, not just from the progress that had been made before, but from the reasons that that progress was slow and incremental. Yeah, I think this analogy with the Super League is awesome. Um, I think even linking back to the specific concerns that, that you have um, talked about, I think legitimizing um, the agenda setting power of uh, health harmful corporations, as you explained in, in the case of the CDC, is in its own right a massive problem. I think this is one of the big investments that the corporations are making through Uh, corporate social responsibility, for example, and I'll ask you later about this as well, um, and then removing, I think, the public health discourse more and more from affected communities uh, to uh, corporate interests here and corporate framing of it. So thanks, this really helped to understand the Super League analogy. I want to play devil's advocate uh, for a little bit and just ask, so I mean, you have explained it a little bit that the uh, foundation sidesteps uh, this process in WHO to exercise risk management, to be aware of conflict of interest. As you were alluding to, Nathan, we have done work in with WHO when they invited alcohol industry lobbyists to an NCD meeting and they promised to improve on that. So, yeah, you are right. There, there is this incremental improvement, but... There is FENSA, and I think the foundation says that they um, respect or that they follow the framework of engagement with non-state actors. So um, why is that not enough? Jeff, maybe if you can begin talking about what is the framework of engagement for non-state actors and why is this not enough that the foundation refers to this? Um, uh, and again, without going into my history teacher mode too much, um, I, th I think it is important to put the WHO Foundation in the context of successive attempts to resolve these problems. So if we go back to when Margaret Chan was Director General of WHO, there was a big attempt at reform and reorganization of the um, uh, of the organization a decade or so ago. Much the most difficult part of that process was... Um, uh, what you've referred to as fences, so the framework for engagement with non-state actors. Now, the, the idea there was that it was supposed to be made easier for WHO to engage with uh, with a rider range um, of actors, recognizing that there are there are more organizations involved in global health playing bigger, more complex roles than in the past. And some of that is, you know, is good. So WHO has never been particularly good or flexible when it's come to working with civil society organizations. So there were important parts of that, of that pensive process intended to address that. Um, but, you know, it then gets a bit more complex when you're thinking about philanthropies and given the 
you know, the influence, uh, the concerns about the influence of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Bloomberg and those kind of questions, that begins to get really messy. The place where it gets really, really messy is about engagement with the commercial sector. And undoubtedly, a key part of the fencer process was an attempt to tap resources from um, the uh, from the commercial sector, from a whole host of uh, of um, of organisations that traditionally haven't um, uh, been allowed to fund WHO for you know for perfectly good and important reasons. And there was there was a big discussion that, in that process about uh, about what were acceptable and unacceptable sources of funding. And lots of countries wanted there to be a long list of, of excluded commercial sector actors. So, you know, the, the easy ones to agree on are typically tobacco and arms in this context. WHO's got well-established rules on that. But there were also countries that were wanting um, alcohol to be excluded from that list, that were wanting ultra-processed foods to be excluded from that list. And it wasn't possible to develop consensus within that. Now, there's been a lot of criticisms about FENSA, um, lots of which I, I would also share, but it does at least establish um, a framework and some sorts of rules for interaction. The the real, you know, to, to take Nason's specific um, point even and, and go even you know even more specific about it. The 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 really important point about the WHO Foundation is that it was set up because Fencer was seen as being too complicated. Essentially, um, while while they're, they're kind of uncertain about whether um, the extent, and if we, you know, Nason's much better place to speak to the documents, but at some places it looks like they're saying they're compliant with FENSA. At some places uh, it's clear that they're not. But really the whole point of the WHO Foundation is to allow WHO to access money from organisations that existing rules don't allow it. If we think about what foundations do for corporate for corporations, when corporations like Coca-Cola or like AB InBev set up their own foundations it's intended to kind of be a tool of legitimacy to improve their their reputation uh to you know to demonstrate uh, their good work the, the really interesting and really terrifying thing about the who foundation is that it's an exercise in a managed loss of legitimacy it's an exercise in in getting their hands dirty but pretending that it doesn't really matter because of you know, ideas that this is somehow arm's length and independent uh, and protected um, uh, and, and autonomous. And there's a whole series of arguments that are being developed on a pretty kind of ad hoc and unconvincing fashion to suggest that somehow what the WHO Foundation does is separate from what WHO does in ways that, you know, that WHO would never accept in relation to, you know, for example, a foundation established by a tobacco company. So it's it it really does get very messy very quickly. And now um, Jeff already gave you the word, Nathan. So if you could specify this a little bit more, um, where what the foundation's rules are um, are actually not following FENSA, even though they are saying they follow FENSA. If you could explain that a little bit more, I think that would be super helpful. Yeah. So. As Jeff mentioned, there's like a conceptual conflict because on the one hand, the foundation claims to be following uh, the principles of FENSA. And it explicitly says we'll follow FENSA principles when accepting donations, when vetting donors. Yeah. But um, 
FENSA does not allow donors the possibility to influence or participate or manage or implement any kind of operational activity. And the WHO Foundation explicitly seeks donations from high net worth individuals, from companies with the promise that they can help shape their donations. They can help kind of shape who, who gets the money and how. And the other thing is that it's really not clear whether receiving funds from the WHO Foundation <laughs> is in violation of FENSA. Like, can the WHO receive funds from the WHO Foundation? Mm. Um, and at, at core, what Jeff mentioned is this kind of deep, deep conceptual problem where if, on the one hand, you're following FENSA principles, yet, on the other hand, you explicitly exist to accept funds that the WHO direct can't accept directly because of FENSA principles, how are you consistent with FENSA principles? It's a really... Um, you know what I mean? It, 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 yeah. uh, it doesn't make sense conceptually. And again, in an open kind of, uh, I think if you were to run a public consultation like you would for another WHO policy like the global alcohol strategy, then those kind of, that kind of language would very soon be picked up. In, in in consultation responses, like the, that there is a, an inconsistency, that this is not really feasible or workable. There are big risks because of this inconsistency. But because of the nature in which this was kind of quietly announced and then launched and as an independent organization, we don't have that same oversight. There isn't that same accountability to actually yeah. go through these documents and go through these policies and say, mm, this is inconsistent or Mm, this is problematic with country X, country Y, with, uh, you know, with civil society. Um, so that's, I mean, uh, does that help? I'm just trying to explain a little bit about the yeah. foundational conflict almost built into to, to the way it's been set up. Yeah, I think it's actually super helpful. I come to think of our experience with the Global Fund um, when they accepted funding from Heineken when we met them, they were saying, we are, we are just taking the money to bring uh, HIV medicines the last mile where, where it's very difficult to get it to people. But if you read um, the promotional material that the Global Fund has on their website, how they approach corporate partners, what this opportunity to fund the Global Fund gives them is this kind of access and like they are selling it. And, and I think that's what you are um, explaining here very well that the WHO Foundation also, also has to sell the opportunity. What is it that a donor or a gift giver uh, would receive in return from, from the funding? It's not altruism, right, that is at play here. And so I think uh, your explanation helps to make this clear that they get something in return. The foundation talks about this in their promotional material, but it actually contradicts um, what it says in FENSA and it undermines credibility that they're actually implementing FENSA. Yeah, and I think that um, we may come onto this later, but because of the, the norm setting function that the WHO has, um, this has trickled down effects. So uh, an example has been the, uh, the announcement which we can talk about a bit more about uh, receiving, thanking Nestle for their donation um, mm. to the COVID response fund that the WHO Foundation did on Twitter. And 
you know, there are specific concerns about the fact that um, Nestle, who have a long history of uh, breaching the uh, guidelines for marketing um, breast milk substitutes, can, you know, kind of, I guess, launder their reputation through being associated very publicly with, uh, with this donation. But because of the norm setting function of the WHO and actually set kind of offering member states and offering civil society some guidelines to, for them saying, well, you cannot engage with the infant formula industry in way X or way Y. That is undermined too, because the WHO is seen as accepting donations from the infant formula industry. So it almost like has potential reverberating effects from the global yeah. level of the WHO to other global institutions, and then down to national and subnational levels where a previous norm that had been long fought for and emerged as sort of like a concrete plane about where these manufacturers should not be involved and should not be uh, allowed to donate is undermined, um, not just at the level of WHO, but potentially undermined at all these lower levels through that norm setting function. And I can't stress how that's quite a flip. It's quite, a, it's quite an abrupt flip. And one of the reasons that it's problematic is the scale of the potential donations. So yeah. the WHO has a relatively small budget, as, as Jeff mentioned, and a lot of that is earmarked. Um, the, the entire biannual budget historically has been around between four and five billion dollars, uh, I would say, recently. Would that be about right, Jeff? Between four and five billion dollars. So um, that's less than the marketing spend of a single large multinational company. Right, it's it's a really small amount of money. It's less than the budget of a single large hospital in the U.S. A really small amount. So when you think about that, there's a real problem with accepting corporate donations, in part because it's very easy for those donations to become a significant proportion of WHO's overall budget. It's very easy for Nestle to actually provide a donation that's greater than the WHO's existing budget for dealing with the marketing of breast, uh, of breast milk substitutes. You know what I mean? So apart from the norm setting thing, there's an issue of scale, you know, and once that something like that happens, it becomes very hard to walk back. The WHO has to decide, okay, we may come out strongly against Nestle in, in, in area X, but that might cut our budget by X percent. You know, so yeah. it's uh, it's tricky. Yeah, thanks for this. And, and there is this uh, there is an excellent part in your commentary here. If I just read it, it's not difficult to envisage a scenario in which donations from alcohol or ultra processed food producers, for example, come to exceed the extremely modest provision in the WHO budget for alcohol control and obesity initiatives. So that's the point you are now making. And when I read it, I was uh, thinking about some of the figures that I know where Anhäuser Busch Inbev, Jeff mentioned them uh, previously, the largest beer maker in the world, they are spending, um, now I forgot the figure, I think uh, $5 billion over 10 years um, in six cities around the world, they say for uh, changing social norms. So they have the smart drinking goals. Um, I, I look uh, the figure up, so that's correct. But and, and Heineken says they want to invest 10% of their marketing spending in something positive to reduce 
um, alcohol harm. So these uh, figures are massive. So when I thought about this, I felt like, yeah, this point that you are making now is actually a real risk that I hadn't considered before. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, the only thing I'd add to that, Mike, is that that 10% of marketing spending is just more marketing spending. You know, that corporate philanthropy is marketing, and that's another kind of key part of this. And if you if you look at it, so, for example, companies like Coca-Cola uh, and, again, AB InVev through Budweiser said, in response to COVID said, we're not going to advertise, we're just going to shift our marketing spend uh, into COVID response because we're such good citizens. Now, of course, that performed really important marketing functions for those companies, particularly at a time when their conventional advertising techniques weren't using half as well because of lockdowns and all, all those other kind of questions. So, But recognizing that you know co- the, the marketing functions of corporate philanthropy is a really important part of this story. And I think also, again, you know, recognizing the specific tensions that emerge around unhealthy commodity industries is important you know you gave the example mike of um uh, of the global fund and its uh, relationships with heineken and uh and in prior to that there'd been similar controversies over a partnership with sab miller around the hiv policy and um uh in south africa uh, and of course you know if we look at the source sustainable development goals there's a strong emphasis on philanthropy and on voluntary initiatives as a way of achieving um uh, an goals that you know multi-sectoralism engaging with the private sector um is the the key to it's seen as critically important to achieving all sorts of sdgs now there's there's lots of grounds to dispute that in, in all sorts of terrains but they become particularly important in the context of ncds precisely because um the increased involvement of commercial sector actors where those actors have a have a key interest is going to lead to a distortion of agendas away from effective measures and towards ineffective ones. And that's what the, um, you know, the Coca-Cola and the CDC story is about, or, you know, or alcohol funding of, of NIH. And that's what that key paragraph of the commentary is essentially about, that, the it, you know, the pressures to generate funding to do anything um, uh, is likely to lead to funding going towards things which which we know are meaningless, which we know are ineffective. And from the point of view of unhealthy commodity industries, are supposed to be ineffective at everything except promoting their legitimacy and reputation. Yeah, thanks for bringing this up. And um, in, of course, I read the commentary and we are discussing issues around it. But there's also, I think, a really uh, recent development that uh, you, Nathan, brought to our attention that when the WHO Foundation was launched, um, I think, Jeff, you mentioned that tobacco and the arms industry, they are off limits uh, by definition for the World Health Organization. But they had a red list um, for the WHO Foundation that also, if I understand it correctly, included the alcohol industry. But recently, that was not public, Mason, please tell me, um, they have removed the alcohol industry from this red list to an orange list. And could you just, am I summarizing this well, Nathan? Could you explain what happened here and why you are concerned about this? Yeah, so I think it's kind of emblematic of the of the, the challenge here, where because the WHO 
foundation is a kind of arm's length organization. It can kind of do what it wants when it wants to a certain to a certain degree. So, uh, as you mentioned, when it was first launched, there was a kind of a general claim that it wouldn't take funds from uh, tobacco or firearms. But there was no gift giving policy when it was launched, and uh, it was possible to donate and for corporate donors to approach the WHO Foundation for months without there being any gift giving policy at all. And this is one of the things we raised in our in our in our commentary. And then there have been much more recent developments. So in March, the gift giving policy appeared on the website, as far as we can tell, um, in draft form. And like you say, it had alcohol as a red list. And you know, we downloaded it at the time because we thought this was uh, interesting and notable notable inclusion. Um, and then uh, I went back to check it again in April. And alcohol had been removed from the red list and placed in this orange list in this draft gift giving policy document. So the first thing is the, the, the fact that there was no gift giving policy for many months while the donations were being received, that's problematic. Yeah. Um, the fact that still, while donors logos are now available for the COVID response fund, which the WHO foundation now manages, but didn't originally, when you go to the WHO Foundation website, there is no information about donors that I can see at all, not even a logo, in spite of it being able to receive donations for many months. And then on this topic specifically of the gift-giving policy, it's hard for us to know really what this means. Is it a typo, really, that it moved from red to orange? It seems unlikely. We're seeking clarification. So there, there are many levels, but I, I think... I wouldn't get away from the fact that the problem is not just that alcohol moves from red to orange. The problem is the whole thing, that there is a, an orange list, for example, where these things are problematic, but maybe we can accept donations from them. And they include things like fossil fuels, things like petrochemicals, this kind of thing. Because it places, again, it places us in this very interesting situation where Climate change is going to be a leading, you know, critical uh, challenge to global health, somewhere the WHO is very keen to, to, to operate in. Uh, Greta Thunberg met with the, the head of the WHO this past mm -hmm. week. Greta Thunberg announced she was donating, her foundation was donating to the WHO Foundation. Uh, but the BP Foundation has also donated to the COVID response fund. And it can because it doesn't fall under the same rules uh, as funding the WHO directly. So we're in the situation where, you know, BP can fund the WHO, but is also heavily conflicted when it comes to climate change. Dow Chemical can fund the WHO, but is very conflicted when it comes to environmental issues in low-middle-income countries. You know, the, these are so the the red list and the orange list and the changes with alcohol. That's concerning, but more concerning is this sort of vague, unclear process and subtle changes that, you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's all very kind of out of control, if that makes sense. I, have, I think I have a very difficult question to you now, given everything that you have explained and talked about, uh, Jeff and Nathan, can the WHO Foundation exist following FENSA and attract funding to help 
WHO fill this obvious funding gap that you have also explained. Like you are saying, Nathan, all these health harmful industries in the best world scenario, they would be red listed. So they, they would be off limits, which I think FENSA would uh, regulate anyway like that. So is this possible or is there, yeah, is, is this possible? What do you think? Yeah, it's, a, it's a really big question, Mike, uh, and um, uh, I think to some extent maybe our commentary slightly ducks it. You know, I think we maybe uh, give a little bit too much credit in terms of recognizing the important drivers that lead to the foundation. At the very least, we can say that you know um, that the the governance processes of the WHO Foundation are horribly inadequate. You know, however we look to explain this ambiguity over the status of alcohol the very least you can say is that you know there's not rigorous clear governance processes norms instruments to explain and guide decision making that that's the least we can say but there are as i say you know some really kind of fundamental um questions about uh whether this can be um can be legitimate whether w whether this particular kind of construct is capable of operating in ways that don't undermine the organization and i'm really not sure that it's that it can you know because it goes back to that logic the very logic of the who foundation is to accept sources um uh, to accept funding from sources that who can't But that ignores the fact that there's very good reasons why WHO can't accept the, the money from those sources. So I, I, I do think that there's some pretty fundamental questions that need to get asked, um, uh, uh, you know, really very quickly because we're at a, a really kind of key, um, a key moment here. And, and obviously, you know, there are some very specific questions about alcohol, and we can situate this the the foundation in a in a long history of WHO having a, a you know a pretty kind of oscillating approach to its interactions with the with the alcohol industry and we recognize the pressures that colleagues within WHO are subject to but but WHO hasn't been able to to develop a um, clear and consistent lines of how it interacts with with WHO uh, sorry with the alcohol industry but if we just take the specific example of Nestle you know Nestle mm -hmm has a really totemic status in global health governance. Our first international legal instrument essentially was geared around a global civil society response to Nestle's abuses in developing countries. Abuses and violations of, an, of a code that have gone on for decades and which still continue. And yet WHO Foundation didn't see this as being a problematic source of funding. Um, and and you know essentially, if we conclude that this is an organization set up in order to accept funding from Nestle and its equivalents, then it's very hard to see how we can see a legitimate and effective route forward for it. Yeah, if, if I can just um, add to that, I think I agree with Jeff that in our commentary we didn't address this directly because at the time we knew so little really um, about the foundation. And we focused on the documents as they were and what they said and assessed them against what, you know, what we knew at the time. But I have to say that the question as to whether the WHO Foundation can exist 
and and have a kind of um, without compromising the overall goals of the WHO. This is exactly the kind of question that should be asked and answered by the stakeholders involved in the WHO. That is the point. This is the kind of question that should be answered through consultation with member states, through consultation mm -hmm. with NGOs. Um, I, I think it's important to note that, you know, sometimes I feel like as academics, we over we take things to the abstract rather than the practical. And we kind of are overcritical of certain initiatives because conceptually they could be better. They could be more ideologically pure or more theoretically uh, you know, rigid. This isn't an example of that. This is an example of hard fought, incomplete, um, but nevertheless robust consensus about what funding, what the challenges of taking this funding, the challenges of WHO's independence, all these kind of things the decades of, of boycotts that led to the, uh, the the regulation of breast milk substitutes, you know, all these kind of things. It's This is an example of all those hard fought uh, norms and slow progress being set aside. So I, I, do, I don't see it personally. I don't see it being feasible because it sidesteps these kind of rules of incremental progress that have led the WHO to where it is. That, that is my sense. I would like to uh, finish this conversation by asking you about what health washing is so that we go back to the broader context and zooming out again from, from this WHO uh, foundation conversation. I think these issues that you have brought up now, uh, Jeff talking about, um, you know, needing WHO needing to actually determine its uh, engagement uh, with the alcohol industry or not, that that needs to be clearer. Uh, Nathan, I think this point that the stakeholders of WHO, like you were alluding to in the beginning also, bringing it back to the community, actually discussing whether a model uh, for funding or fundraising uh, like the foundation can work or not, Uh, whether it jeopardizes uh, the public good that WHO stands for. I think these are important things that I take with me from uh, discussing this with you. So I wanted to go, go back to this a little bit broader questions, a question of what is health washing? How are corporations uh, using that? Um, and how are they um, achieving their corporate objectives through um, health washing? Um, so it, it's a good question. So the, the term sounds a bit odd, um, but it's uh, it's basically taken from replicating the, the long-standing uh, record of, of fossil fuel companies, in particular in greenwashing. You know, and mm. investing in environmental projects in order to demonstrate um, uh, environmental credentials. Now, for for unhealthy commodity industries in particular, health washing is important because. The key strategic challenge for alcohol companies or for ultra-processed food companies is to demonstrate that they can be, uh, in their parlance, part of the solution. So the, the most important, you know, one of the most important political objectives for unhealthy commodity industries is to establish partnerships, to establish collaborative relationships 
with respected health actors, whether that be governments, whether that be civil society organisations or international organisations like WHO. Um, and, and for for global, uh, for transnational corporations um, in the alcohol space or in the food space, the most important such relationship that they could establish would be with WHO. If the, the you know, if we look at how um, alcohol companies have long sought to demonstrate that somehow their voluntary marketing commitments are compatible in their terms with advancing the, the global alcohol strategy. There's a lot of money and a lot of effort has gone on into suggesting that their voluntary initiatives are somehow advancing global health goals. And these kind of philanthropic ad, um, uh, investments are another way of taking that forward. And, you know, as Nathan said, a lot of work has been done on on corporate foundations, on, on health washing, on green washing. Uh, and, you know, there's a fairly consistent message that comes from the evaluation of these, which is that there are beneficiaries from these um, philanthropic investments, um, but the beneficiaries are the corporations themselves. You know, that the, 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 the very least, you, the most you're going to get is really kind of ameliorative, small-scale um, uh, interventions. And in these kind of spaces, investments are triggered by the strategic needs of the companies that drive them. And uh, and for unhealthy commodity industries, that's inevitably going to involve some pretty serious of conflicts of interest with, uh, with core global health goals. And I think if I if I might speak to the specifically thinking of the alcohol industry and, and health washing um, and how the foundation model kind of enables that more generally. Um, there's a long history, as Jeff mentioned, of the alcohol industry funding largely ineffective um, you know, marketing campaigns around responsible drinking. Mm. Um, and we've done research that shows these campaigns rarely define responsible drinking in terms of a volume of alcohol consumed. They're very, they're strategically ambiguous. They're rarely evaluated, but they attract a lot of alcohol industry funding. And it's easy for those of us in public health to say, well, it's kind of harmless. They're doing this, you know, but it's, it's, it doesn't really affect uh, our priorities. But in the cases where these organizations can then fund public health, uh, organizations, it becomes really harmful because uh, 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 first of all, it gives these kind of unevidenced initiatives a glean of legitimacy because they are now being funded with the logo of a, of a, of a public health agency. It makes it seem as if responsible drinking campaigns are part of the solution, you know, uh, and it um, it legitimizes the role of the industry more generally as a public health partner, an area where it has no competence and it has a conflict of interest. And that's beyond before you even get into the specific goals of responsible drinking campaigns, like placing the emphasis on the consumer rather than the marketer and the producer, um, which is which is also problematic. I would like to summarize our conversation uh, just for me to see if I actually have understood um, what you have explained today. I would have three points. Um, number one, gifts are not gifts. So these donations, the gifting to the WHO Foundation, they come at least with you know agenda setting ability and actually also facilitating lobbying and political interference. Um, secondly, the WHO Foundation 
um, in global health is like the European Super League in, in football. So removing important global health issues from member states and the community uh, like the Super League did or would have done from the football fans. And thirdly, um, we are focusing today on the WHO Foundation for the reasons that you have explained, but looking especially at the SDGs and um, the, the non-communicable diseases in the era of sustainable development, there are larger governance and conflict of interest issues at play. Uh, Jeff mentioned the partnership model uh, that need to be resolved where then the WHO Foundation is actually just one example of um, these kinds of attempts to undermine, um, I think, evidence-based solutions. Do you have any comments on, on these three summary points? Any final thoughts you would like to share? Thanks, Nitz. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 well, well done for summarising such a sprawling conversation, but I, I'd agree with, with all of that. I, I think I'd add a fourth point, though, which is that this is a really key moment um, uh, and that the the context of COVID response makes um, is giving a new say. If we look at AB InBev's corporate social responsibility pages around their, their contributions to COVID response, it's tagged as more ways we're part of the solution. Um, uh, and uh, and it, it, the, the attempts to kind of reinforce the, um, the partnership model um, in this current context uh, are really worrying from the NCD agenda from, and from global health agendas more, more broadly. And, and COVID is also relevant because there's a, a real risk that um, the kind of the urgency of uh, the need of response allow, leads to us forgetting um, the much bigger, longer term um, tensions between these organisations um, and infectious disease, as well as uh, as well as non communicable diseases, and, and there's a there's a pursuit of fool's gold at the minute. Um, the idea that that money from such organisations doesn't come with strings and doesn't come with reputational and practical costs, uh, and that actually, you know, a sustained and effective response to COVID is only going to be based on taking these longer-term conflict of interest fundamental goals for NCDs seriously. Thanks, Jeff. And what are your uh, final thoughts, Nathan? Yeah, I, um, I think it is a pivotal moment, um, in part because because of the COVID moment, it's a time when attention is elsewhere and where a lot of normal functioning of institutions and organizations um, outside the WHO are distracted. And I think it's, it's, it's a critical moment when we you know, can either acknowledge the trade-offs of such a drastic move and openly discuss the trade-offs or ignore uh, those trade-offs, which have formed the basis of all the reasons for the obstacles we talked about before. Um, and I think that's, that's at our peril. I just don't think we can afford to focus only on the needs of the moment and ignore the causes of the moment. Mm. And I worry that, I worry that that is what we're doing. 
Thank you. Those two points, um, I think they are brilliant um, as uh, closing thoughts for today. So uh, one more time, thank you very much, uh, Jeff and Mason, for taking time and talking about these issues today. Really appreciate uh, hanging out with you, listening and learning from you. Absolute thanks. pleasure. Cheers, Mike. And thanks, Nathan. <laughs> Take care. Bye, guys. Take care. Bye. This podcast episode is part of Movendi International's work to help improve understanding of global health governance issues and how health harmful industries are trying to interfere with and undermine the work of WHO. In the show notes, we share key resources with you about commercial determinants of health, conflicts of interest in health and development, and about how the alcohol industry is trying to operate. And you can find key links to the scientific work of Nathan Mani and Jeff Collin. If you have feedback, questions and suggestions, please feel free to get in touch. I'd love to hear and read from you. My email address is mike.dunbier at movendi.ngo. You can also reach me on Twitter and find my contact details in the show notes. The Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pinho, Taraka Ranchigoda, Kristina Sperkova and Mike Dunbier. Our theme music for this episode comes from LF Music. That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in and stay well and safe and talk to you soon.